Hey there, everybody. My name is Akash Bhatt, and welcome to the Desi VC podcast. Each week, I bring you leading investors and operators investing and building in the diverse tech landscape of India. Sitting across the table from me today is Pranav Marwa. He's part of the Marwa family office, who are investors in a number of VC funds and startups in the country. Today, the family group of business have interests that are diversified across real estate. hospitality sports and other areas of investments such as venture capital and the public stock market the fourth generation which pranav happens to belong to is also setting up and running one of india's largest startup incubators known as thinkubate well in today's conversation with pranav i'm eager to learn more about the family office's interest in tech and venture as an asset class and understand how they end up supporting some of their investments in both funds as well as startups so without further ado let's head in and listen to my conversation with pranav pranav it's a pleasure to host you here on the show today we've been talking about a whole bunch of things before the start of the episode before i get into any of that welcome to the show and how is it going firstly thank you so much for having me akash uh, it's a pleasure to be on the show like i was mentioning earlier i've been an avid listener um through the content that you ha- you have created um and uh, always look forward to the next episode coming out and quite glad to be part of this myself um but thank you for having me very kind words um uh, i wanted to start off the episode with one particular question before we had that conversation before the recording itself and now my mind is just going all places but one of the things that i remember you mentioning was you invest not in billion dollar businesses only but in sustainable founders building sustainable businesses and that stood out to me in that whole conversation that we had and i know you and i had quite a few points in that conversation which kind of like stood out but this is one of the things that you know is very top of mind for me right now and you as a family office have diversified your investments over the years and you know most lately you've been investing into tech startups talk to us about sustainability and how important that is for a family office from an investment point of view not just in tech startups and founders but overall why is sustainability so important um in today's context especially for family offices as they think about diversifying their investments so it's been a strange journey for what it's worth and and the reason we talk about sustainability more than anything else is because we're aware of the value that we can bring and the value we can't bring right uh, i mentioned it earlier anybody with money can really write you a check but it depends on how you want that business to grow uh, for us the reason i always say we're not chasing the billion dollar opportunity and i say this with a pinch of salt because my anti portfolio perhaps looks a lot more robust than my portfolio uh but at the same time there's no regret on missing out on not deploying capital right um sustainability comes from bu- building good business fundamentals right and also potentially backing the right kind of people um it's a really interesting anecdote my grandfather told me when we initially entered this sort of asset class and he wasn't someone who was someone who was privy to this asset class in in detail but he always mentioned to me when it came to unlisted sort of alternative assets and he said that this is always going to be a rough ride and a tough journey uh 
because we're talking about 2013, 14 as well, sort of a long, long time ago. Um, and he said that, A, are you ready to lose all your money? Right? Are you are you going in it with the going into it with the mindset that this is a potential write-off from my end? And am I okay with it? If that is the case, what can you leverage most out of it? And he said that if you are going to sink, you'd rather sink with people you can enjoy and learn. Right. Um, and that's where the sort of entire thesis was born from of investing in people, uh, people who are building sustainable products, people who are focusing on the right business fundamentals and unit economics. And generally, actually, potentially solving a problem. Um, we have never been, and I hope don't be, won't be in the future, FOMO investors. Um, and that's the case with being LPs in funds or investing directly in any sort of business. Sustainability comes from people, right? And how people are looking to drive their businesses. Can a sustainable business become a billion-dollar business? Of course, it can become a billion-dollar business. Does the gestation period for that become longer? Yes. However, we're patient capital. I don't have, I'm fortunate to be in a place where I'm not answerable to any LPs. I'm answerable perhaps to my family and our internal structures. Uh, but that gives me the freedom to be patient capital, right? Uh, there are some businesses that can turn into rocket ships four years after we deploy capital. Uh, and we're potentially seeing that in the portfolio as well today. But that's the fundamental idea. It's not about 18 months, 24 months, and how we can deploy quicker and faster and more. It's a quality versus quantity, always. But the other element, and coming to the other point of the question you asked about family offices and the exposure in general. When we started out, there was bankers all over the place uh, trying to convince family offices to allocate between 5 and 10% of their total portfolio or wealth portfolio that was being managed by them. Um, across the alternative asset class. Um, is that a good thing? More money? Perhaps so. Seven years back? Yes. Today, still happens. A lot of capital coming into the ecosystem that doesn't necessarily have a very clear idea of what they want to do. Challenging from a sustainability point of view. So one of the things that I always say to friends, for example, who are running family offices or are part of family offices is sort of someone from the promoter group at least from our generation, being a bit more hands-on and seeing how capital is being deployed. Um, the conservatism that took me seven years to get over from an internal family hierarchy may take much shorter for people today because, you know, it, there was there was one of the podcasts that previously we were talking about. Uh, uh, we spoke, you guys, you guys spoke about how in India today, uh, we can talk about IPOs potentially actually being a liquidity event. Right, seven years back when that used to be in, in SHAs and in, in terms, it didn't really mean much. That wasn't necessarily a potential liquidity event. With that changing over the last two years, um, I think a lot of family office capital is seeing it potentially as a great source of fast money. Um, and that's where my disconnect sometimes comes, uh, where I've always been taught to think about building annuities. Uh, and when you build annuities, you think from a 10 to 12 to 15 year cycle. Um, and, and that's the approach that we are trying to bring. Very interesting point that you made there because a unique position that where family offices sit out of is they control the narrative. And that is a privilege in most cases because even when the market changes, they're able to like hold back capital because they're not, like you said, answerable to any LPs. 
they don't have certain number of investments that they have to deploy on a yearly basis. They can really sit back and say, let me see how things play out. Now, you've been investing for over a decade now, you know, in, into this asset class. And you've seen two cycles where the industry has gone up and low and kind of like going through a phase right now as well, which repeated from 2016. There, there were two peaks and they were almost, I wouldn't say a, we're going through a lull-ish period, but this is different from the last two years that we've seen in terms of the amount of funding and, and all the craziness that's happened in and around the Indian tech um, ecosystem. So when you're sitting in your position, your vantage point, and you've seen a cycle like 2014, 2015, 2016 go through, and you've seen 2020 to 2022, how do you think about these cycles as such from an investment lens? And how, what do you tell yourself when the market is like so hot? You didn't mention that you're happy to keep away from some of these investments that are just driving up all the noises in the, in the ecosystem, um, in the news, in the media, making all the rounds. There is no FOMO that's kind of created amongst your mentality and the way that you approach investments. But at some point, how do you keep yourself in check when everybody and everything around you is just kind of indicating towards, hey, you're missing out on these investments, man. Hey, you, you've got to be in, in the market right now. It's, there's no better time to be in the market. But then you're also seeing some of these investments kind of go wayward. It's happened in the past. It's yeah. happened in the West. It's happened in China. It's happening in India. We've seen a bunch of layoffs. We've seen some of these companies not do so well. We've seen companies shutting down. How does the family office, how does your family office particularly look at everything from a global perspective, from an India perspective, and then develop its own thesis while giving you the liberty to do what you want to do? You see what I see? What I, what I mean? It's like a paradox. Yeah, no, absolutely. You have all the flexibility I, and you have all the learnings. And then you've got to like, make those decisions yourself as to which way you yeah. want to actually go. Yeah. So really interesting that you asked that. So late 18, early, and probably through most of 19, we actually didn't deploy any direct early stage tickets, any, any sort of investments. Uh, we felt the market was too overpriced. Um, so running an early stage program, right, where we used to invest 50, and we had a, a large global fund that was investing with us in the program that we were running. So if I wrote a 50K check or 30K check, they basically mirrored our check sort of, and we did the diligence and all of those things. It makes our value prop greater. It gives us sort of access to different territories. But my point being that even though we were in that position where we had strength of network, there were other early stage programs coming. Surge came in giving a million and a half check to companies that were at a comparable stage. Were we competing with the deals that were potentially going to surge? Not necessarily alluding to that at all. But when the top end of the funnel, or rather the bottom end of the cream of the funnel, uh, tends to see more capital, the middling chunk of companies that could potentially do well, which may not be in the same category of the best companies or founders out there, tend to expect a lot more than they deserve as well. Right? So the inflationary aspect of more capital being at a pre-seed C stage to pre-revenue companies affected us directly. What we did, we took a step back and we actually said, hey, you know what? we're going to look more from an LP point of view for the next 18 months. We're going to diversify our outlook in, will we miss out on a few deals that we feel are overpriced? Absolutely. But we then focused on only on relationship-based sort of deployment. How well do we know the founders? Um, do we believe in their ability to execute for this market? Um, those are the kind of sort of decisions we started making. In hindsight, a couple of those decisions weren't necessarily even the best decisions. Um, we've unfortunately had a pretty 
it was there was a company in the edtech space that recently shut down uh we were we were involved in the seed and in the pre-series a um and we've sort of seen how things have, have gone through the entire cycle right so our course correction has been always taking a step back uh re-evaluating uh and coming back with a more focused approach um like i said right so today we launched what we're doing across building the investment program in sport broadcast media and gaming because we realized that at an early stage if we wanted to start bringing incremental amount of value again we'd have to be a bit more focused by actually strengthening the network to the point where the network may outweigh the capital value right anybody with money can write you a check but in certain categories of business value is a lot more valuable uh, than sort of valuation or or sort of anything on those fronts um, so that's always been our outlook that if the world around you is shifting do you have the ability to hit pause take a step back uh, play devil's advocate uh, i'm fortunate that in my family office we've we've had people who are critical of the things that we're doing um, or or naysayers to some extent of some of the decisions we're making because that allows us to stay in check it allows us to course correct um and what my my father has a thing of always saying uh, and he said this now to his grandkids as well he says every it's your inheritance he's like make a decision you make a bad decision it's going to affect you make a good decision it works out well for you it's going to benefit you right so sort of just putting that onus yeah it's putting the onus on us that you live and die by both edges of the sword yeah. let's see how you can execute right now taking going off of that point right you did previously also touch upon the point that some of your investments perhaps could take 4 or 5 years to see some returns because you also believe in patient capital you also been an lp you know being an lp also means that sometimes you don't see returns for a longer time than traditional investments where you could perhaps get secondary exits now you're playing a long haul game either way with just the philosophy that you have how do you, how does a family office come to an understanding on its thesis like how do you internally have these conversations so let's take the most recent plunge that you guys had which was getting into the lp side of the business and the lp side of the equation now when the family decided to have this conversation who was leading it how do the conversations mm-hmm. play out how does the family think about it and and how does diligence differ because in my experience the relationship with the fund manager has developed over a longer period of time versus that with a founder because with a founder you don't you obviously don't have an opportunity or in some cases you perhaps might you probably have a relationship with the founder for a longer time um or you may have known this person beyond the time that they've started the company and then you perhaps want to invest in them but with a fund manager when you get introduced to a fund manager it's a longer term relationship you want to understand how they think what is the philosophy what are the principles what are their morals how aligned you guys are all on um, certain things that are important for your family business how they represent you these are just this is tip of the iceberg then we've not even gotten into the investment side of the things and what the sectors are that they'll be investing in how they plan to support the portfolio how do they plan to leverage the lps and the network that the lps bring into the conversation but the initial conversations that you all had internally saying hey we'll take a pause for investments as such and look at lps look at becoming an lp in the in some of these funds that are up and coming in the country one how do they play out two what changed in 2018 and what prompted that decision for you guys 
so you know it's interesting to say that when we started out uh, we obviously didn't have the relationships right we talk about 14 15 16 we were new to the ecosystem ourselves the number of funds existing in the market were also a lot lesser than they are today or even in 2018 um i think it's been watershed the last 3 years a number of funds that have sort of micro vc mid tier large tier sort of just like across the board right um and when i look back we probably made those mistakes at the outset of how we deployed the capital because we wanted to be involved rather than how we can deploy the capital for long term value proposition right and i think that's the biggest course correction between 15 16 and 18 that we potentially made uh did we make a couple of bad decisions to deploy capital in few funds we did right uh, where the same thesis we have about relationship building with founders very rightly like you put it is even deeper with with funds so and fund if, managers if just interrupt you here what do you mean by a bad decision because a bad decision can mean a number so, of things so bad decision for me isn't monetary yeah right and i think that is secondary to any capital deployment right and maybe i say this from a point of privilege because i have the ability to deploy that capital and i think i'm very well aware of that but when i when i strip that away from my thought process because everything where you deploy money could do well or could not do well um uh, relationships are the crux of everything we've unfortunately had a couple of experiences where fund managers aren't as communicative uh they may not necessarily be as direct or open or transparent uh with their lps um and that's the kind of thing that i personally and we as a family office find increasingly challenging right because i feel good bad or ugly uh, it's important to address the matters at hand and to be open and transparent to anybody who's given you capital regardless of the size of the check if you're a 20 crore fund and somebody's given you 50 lakhs or you're a 100 crore fund and somebody's given you 10 crores right and uh, i i i don't see a distinction between amount of capital that's me personally a fund manager may or may not think differently i've seen different fund managers behave in very very different manners and that's when the greatest learnings has sort of come through and i think 2018 onwards we've been backing follow on funds of funds we've already invested in because relationships have developed well we have stepped away from funds where we had previously deployed but are not redeploying because we felt like there were few things that were question marks um that were perhaps unanswered and simultaneously there were relationships that we had built for the last 5 or 6 years when i didn't have the capital or didn't have the buy in of the family office and i had to choose between deploying in two funds versus four funds and i had the capital in 18 to deploy money or deploy into the funds where i had relationships i jumped at right so that was the key thing in 2018 19 when we started deploying it was completely a case of okay if we're going to take a step back and we're going to be relationship driven investors uh i want to then try and back folks who have been kind with their time with me uh for the last 4 years who have always given me the sort of mutual respect of this guy's trying hard working hard trying to figure out an ad value uh, and those are the things that i even as a as a promoter just seeing in insane amount of value in right just being a nice person right uh, being available uh, being helpful um, i've been very fortunate to have a couple of the fund managers sort of help me out in situations where i'm trying to make a decision helping me with vet my own deal flow um and those are the kind of relationships where we then wanted to try and deploy capital where we we had the capital to deploy um 
and i've been fortunate that the family office has backed me with incremental amounts of capital as as the years have rolled by uh, even though there may not have been large scale trigger liquidity opportunities because when i set out to do this it was perhaps quite clear in saying by 2025 if i need a certain amount of capital that i have the ability and fortune to deploy and potentially lose what is that and how do i deploy it over the next 10 years right and then i can look back and say whether i've made a good decision or not but which is why relationships again became extremely extremely uh, important what i would only suggest to all family offices or or and i see it a lot right across our generation there's a lot of people who have studied overseas gotten great exposure working overseas have come back to india they've seen a lot of growth in the sort of startup ecosystem and they're trying to convince their family or their friends or so on and so forth to deploy capital i just say that one should be wary uh, and one should you should know what you're deploying capital in i've had too many conversations uh, where capital has been deployed uh, but if you ask them in depth questions about the business they've deployed it in they're unlikely to have an answer right so that's the the one thing that i just always harp on about is is smart and patient capital is what the family office should try and focus on being good suggestion and um, i've had a few conversations with people who advise family offices especially getting into this asset class and all of them have said the same thing try and understand this before you can actually put a lot of your capital in yeah. it it's all about diversification smartly it's about allocating 5% of your family office investments into this asset class and initially figuring out where you find your um foot in is that being an lp is that actually being an investor and what does that mean to you when you are an investor what kind of value proposition what is your value add how can, how do you help these companies scale to the next level is it the fact that you're bringing in more investors who can be strategics who can open doors and you talked about it you know people who spent a lot of time outside the country have they built those relationships with people who come from very similar backgrounds and similar family office backgrounds while they were off at business school or law school like you like you have and bringing those partnerships and leverage and, and leverage all of those to help these companies scale to different geographies as well especially if there are um, consumer businesses or, or companies that are scalable across the globe now that is real value add now when you are thinking about you know from your generation perspective let's talk about you know our generation rather than saying your generation let's talk about our generation how we think about value proposition how we think about value add especially by keeping the family into context the way that our families have traditionally gone ahead and thought about you know a value add it's always relationship centric and i can speak to that from a personal perspective right it's all about building the relationship getting to know this person getting to know if this is somebody that you want to get into business with and then it's all about hey you know you scratch my back i scratch yours sort of a situation what kind of like plays out over the years and then when you venture into something new i'll be more than happy to back you because of the level of trust i have with you and not just purely on on the business the business as we all know will you know go through ups and downs and eventually a good founder or good business manager will figure things out that is something that we all understand about not just startups but any business in general now with our generation slightly different it's it's much more of a, a transactional economy than having that initial relationship development and that's kind of where i think we have all kind of like fast forward that that process which is built over decades by our families and we try to make that over like a few months and a few years 
um, or the or, or, or the or the span of the last four or five um, years that I've seen a lot of other family office people like us who kind of like fasten through that process to get hold of some of these investments, and that's not just because of you know what they the deals and all the noise that around them as we spoke about, but it's also the fact that they are also in a precarious position where they need to prove to their families that what they're doing with their time and money is something that is that is worth pursuing that's worth backing because you know me you may be one person against 10 people at the house who does not back this decision but you know it, you've you've got to go through with it and even if that means being part of this some, some of these deals where you're not making any returns on paper but it all kind of gives you access to people and you know other funds it's how do you really measure the, the return that's coming out of you participating in any sort of an investment, LP perspective from a, from a founder perspective. So when you're thinking about it, how are you measuring for impact and returns? And how important is one over the other or the other way around? Like what is more important to you? So, you know, a couple of things on this. You know, you asked this question and I was smiling when you were asking this question because I think the wheels were sort of turning in my head. There was an there was an there was a sort of time after you know in 2018 where we were being challenged with the kind of inflated early stage deal flow that we were seeing. Um, that I took a step back when we did, and I said, "Hey, you know what? Do we need to alter the way we're deploying capital? Do we need to sort of course correct? Do we need to do this and so on and so forth?" And mind you, we had a pretty solid portfolio on paper. Uh, if you look at just my MOIC that was there, if I had to treat it like a fund, for example, and look at my MOIC across my portfolio, it was looking pretty good. My IRR was looking pretty good. All of those things on paper that most fund managers may have potentially taken to market and raised money on. Uh, and, and, and I wanted to change a few things, right? And I was obviously very close to the decision making because I was leading it and driving it. And there was this moment where my dad just took me aside. Um, and he was someone who took probably the longest to convince uh, in what we were doing. Not because he didn't believe in it, but just because he believes in critiquing foundational growth till it gets to a point where it can sort of build itself. Um, and he said to me something that he hadn't said previously, which was continue doing what you're doing. You may not realize it because you're close to it, but you're making logical decisions. Uh, you're looking at things objectively and you've never deployed capital out of home. Right, which we've seen people, he sees, he sees friends around him, he sees people around him, we see family around us deploying capital, which is growing and some crash and burning. Right? But from a sustainability, that perhaps from an impact internally was something that stayed with me a lot because we're so attuned as this current generation to wanting things fast. Right? And that gratification of turning things around quicker, making money faster, going into the public eye and saying, hey, look at this investment I made. Look at how this company has grown. We see so much wealth creation around us. And sometimes you ask yourself the question, why am I not a part of this? Right? And I feel like it's important for you to measure impact not on your ability to be part of this, but on your ability to continue making the decisions you're making because you back your own ability and rationale and thesis and logic. Right. And that for me has been always critical uh, from a personal point of view. Right. So when we talk of impact of social impact or internal impact, or then you talk of capital growth or value creation or valuation, all of them are important. There is no two ways about it. 
but what's important i think from a family office is understanding transitional growth as well right especially when there's only promoters driving it if today you had a, a professional who came in and you professionalized that entire investment you brought in a cio and you put in that structure that's a very different situation but if you are a promoter of the current generation in a family office that's sort of deploying capital and trying to grow i bring back to that same point of it's your inheritance right my grandfather was someone who gave my father the ability to grow the business on his terms right because he says you're going to spend the next 20 or 30 or 40 years of your life nurturing that baby that we sort of got to this point we have that same ethos right for me it's not the impact we are creating as much from externally but also the impact i'm creating with the decisions i'm making internally which then gave me more capital which then gave me more freedom which then gave me the ability to look in areas that we may not have potentially looked before uh that then puts you at a place where you can do a lot more um you can think more macro you can think more global uh, and you can think perhaps instead of in a 10 year window you can think across a 5 year or 7 year window simply because you can diversify the larger pool of capital that you may be deploying right so i don't think impact should be measured on capital at all um i think and again from a gestation period and then taking back to impact right we had a company we invested in in 2016 um and it's now 6 years in uh well last year uh there was a point where we had a large listed food sort of technology and food like basically jubilant food works coming in and, and doing a large strategic round in the company uh because the founders for 6 years had actually built something extremely sustainable and because of the stage at which we operate we're sitting on a beautiful mountain right that's the kind of outlook that we've always had right uh, and and impact is measured by employment created impact is measured by people's lives affected or changed or improved um and i look at impact with how am i improving my internal organizational hierarchy we've grown as an organization we've staffed greater as an organization because we've always been run in a very traditional manner right and to change those things or to evolve those things i think you need to get into the trenches yourself right and it's not about putting it out on social media to people around you that's what i'm doing it's how i'm doing it it's about actually rolling up your sleeves and doing the work right a uh, company needs a manufacturing facility set up you're on ground with them going scouting locations figuring out machinery and helping them install helping them with licensing helping them with other things across the board that's the way i've been taught to sort of operate as time goes on as portfolios grow it of course becomes increasingly harder to deploy the same amount of time and effort and bandwidth and resource which is why we're trying to bring in one by one by one more people into our investing circle and investing group who have the same ethos who come from for example potentially a background where they come from a family business or their father has been or their mother has been or their family has been entrepreneurs or run their own small business it brings that element of accountability you know that personal sort of personable element of accountability um because we don't want to change the way in which we approach our investment right some founders don't like it and we'll step away some founders are like no look i'll come to you when i need something from you right otherwise we have our scheduled catch ups and we'll do that what we catch up outside of work is separate right so i just feel like impact should be measured on how well your relationships have evolved um how 
well or how much you've been able to bring value to your family office and show them the opportunity over the next 5 10 15 20 years in this space that's my personal opinion these are fantastic points especially when you talked about value adds and how family offices eventually are evolving and mirroring how funds are structured today especially as they think about the structures right so when you're talking about right from investments to that relationship management all the way up until portfolio support which is basically now called platforms and how that kind of evolved within the vc ecosystem you're saying family offices adopt a very similar structure to help them carry out this end to end sort of support for the founders beyond just capital now as you're thinking about productizing this and making sure that the structure is functioning from all directions and you're bringing the right kind of people who have similar backgrounds or whether be in founders and know how to like have this value how do you think about the future where does a family office start positioning itself thinking about this asset class say 5 to 10 years from now where do they want to be and what kind of role does this play in the larger context of the other asset classes and investments that the family has done and the reason i ask this question is at what point do you start moving away from deploying 5 10 15 20% capital and saying hey we're now going to put in 50% of our capital and out of that 50 will perhaps do a 25 split where we ourselves will go out and invest in companies and we'll do a 25% into funds as lps or whatever that number is at what point do you break away and start feeling that there's a lot more momentum here than some of the original asset classes maybe gold maybe real estate maybe stock market could be something else crypto that you've kind of been looking at um from a historical perspective and say this is going to be our vision and strategy going moving forward you know it really resonates the question because we've operated across commercial real estate and commercial leasing for the past 25 30 years maybe 40 years now um and then my dad is someone who's intrinsically involved and he loves real estate right um it took us almost 10 years uh to get him to start stop deploying more capital in real estate that wasn't commercial leasing and you sort of a yield based model right when you talk about building annuities i talk about building high yields that are repetitive in nature that allow you to sort of build for the next 10 years right and that's the balance i try to bring to the alternative asset class that if we can build more stable businesses that are good operationally cash flow generating businesses i can always increase the corpus i can deploy across this asset class right if i again take a step back and 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 to sort of look at what the future holds i think financial prudence will always dictate a good blended rate between your asset classes right and i think data should always drive that decision traditional asset classes like real estate or gold or so on and so forth i mean i don't necessarily see them as the area to deploy capital today outside of certain pockets right and, and playing a very different sort of hands on thesis in certain areas what we did as a family office when we diversified across moving away from real estate is predominantly actually that i kept increasing my exposure uh, to the alternative asset class area and the sort of industry because i realized that we were hands on we could bring more value and it wasn't just about allocating resource to an asset class it was about trying to build operator driven businesses in a hands on manner right so the day i started looking at it as more of maybe a verticalized operation within our larger family office 
where if we're building platforms and we're adding value and we're deploying capital, whether it be as an LP or directly or through our network, I have to stop looking at it as just capital deployment on the vis-a-vis, uh, uh, -vis, for example, investing in real estate or investing in certain bonds or investing across the public markets or whatever it is. Because we are not operators investing in the public market. That's not our forte. That's not what, I mean, as a family office, we have wealth managers. They take care of that. They deploy that capital, a certain amount of resources allocated, right? What I said right at the start, right? We, we know we're not experts. We know what we know and we know what we don't know. Do we know real estate and infrastructure and hospitality space? Yes, we know that space. We're hands-on operators. Do we know sport and gaming and the entire broadcast media space? Yes, we know we're hands-on operators. When we're deploying capital with early stage businesses, do we have an understanding of taking a business from zero to one and focusing on GTM and brand development to get it to a point of sort of raising a certain amount of incremental institutional capital? Yes, that's an area we've focused on being operator producers in the last seven years. And that's where we start looking at it as not just capital deployment. I put 5% of my portfolio or 10% of my portfolio towards this asset class. Uh, it's incredible how in the last 12 months that has shifted completely just on the basis of momentum in the market as well. Because we're not looking at it from a point of view of, man, I've now deployed 8% or 9% of my total assets under management to this asset class. It's a very clear opportunity basis. We've had... I think we're probably deploying in two funds uh, very soon um, that were not even within our mind space 18 months ago. Uh, but they are sector focused, very, very driven fund managers with very relevant experience. And it's not necessarily just an India exposure. It's more sort of macro in nature, right? So not sector agnostic, very, very focused funds, small funds, uh, might be first time fund managers. Uh, we started realizing that because we can play our role of operator investor much better there, right? And try to add value to even the places where we're deploying capital as an LP, right? So what the future holds, I'm a personally a firm believer of someone from the promoter group or, or somewhere established inside the promoter group, at least for the scale at which I operate. Um, and I know a lot of people around me operate that it's important to be hands-on. Uh, but don't look at it only as a 5%, 10%, because a wealth manager is already telling you that. If you're at a scale where you have the capital to deploy 100, 200, 500, million, 2 million, 5 million, even in small scale, I'm saying capital, you can deploy across the space to learn, right? And to understand what's going on. Don't do it on the basis of my wealth manager has a great relationship with this fund. So on the basis of his trust and relationship with that manager, I'm going to deploy capital. That's not the capital you potentially want to be. Um, again, I've been there. I've done that. I wouldn't do it again. Right? So that's, yeah. No, sorry to cut you there. But then one of the things that you mentioned there was you really understand where the strengths lie within the family business. Mm -hmm. And within your context, you mentioned real estate, sports. That's where you have got the strongest relationship, historical success. All of that are assets that you bring to the table when you're perhaps talking to founders or even talking to um, fund managers from that perspective. Because are you conservative when you begin with and say, hey, these are, this is our value add and these are sectors that we want to play in. And we are only going to back founders and fund managers who invest in playing these sectors. Or are we going to be agnostic and diversify a little bit? And in that whole process, we also eventually want to learn about other sectors. We may not have 
a lot of influence and connections in that space, but we want to learn this. Or do you stick to what you know at first and then eventually say, well, let's try and see if this is somewhere we can make money, impact, relationships, and then look to diversify maybe from year three, year four onwards. How does that conversation play out internally when you're thinking about where you would like to put your money and bet on from a family mm-hmm. office perspective? So from a fund point of view, I've always preferred deploying in an area I don't know something about. Um, it gives me the opportunity to learn a different sector. It gives me the opportunity to get insight into different investing theses. Uh, fundamentally, because as operator investors, um, it's easier for me to be that if I'm investing directly into a business where we have a certain amount of backage. So when we, for example, talk to anybody across the sport or gaming landscape, uh, it's insane how many times the founders or the set of founders will be like, at the end of the call, they'll be like, man, it was refreshing to have this call because you know what, you actually asked me questions that most investors haven't because you work in the space. So you understand the space, plus you've been investing. And that shook me, right? I said that, then why are you raising that kind of capital? Right, especially at a pre-seed seed stage, uh, if you go looking, there are pockets of capital that will be available to you, right? So areas where we feel we can bring value, I don't necessarily want to be an LP. I'd rather d- drive that deal flow to funds or, or other people and come in at a much earlier stage because my value prop comes in at a stage where I can get access, right? Uh, so as a fund investment, I've, I mean, I verticalize some of our investments as well, right? So we're looking at sector-specific thesis-driven funds. Uh, and not necessarily as much generalist funds. Uh, just from a point of view of, does an individual or group of individuals have the expertise across that space and is very focused on their deployment, right? And that becomes the opportunity for me to learn um, and, and sort of allows the family office to also then learn and get that sort of forward thinking ability because of what they're seeing as a fly on the wall. That's also honestly why it's a strange thing a lot of people tell me, but I, I really like first-time fund managers, right? Maybe you say from the point of view of, I just have the ability to build a better relationship, potentially. I mean, if you're a huge 1,000 crore fund or 800,000, 1,500 crore fund, how much time do you have um, for most of your LPs, right? Uh, it's give or take, depending on a few LPs you may or may not be close to. But as somebody who's running a 100 crore fund, 50 crore fund, I mean, you, you value people who also bring you value, who bring you deal flow, who bring you that ability. We get deal flow sector agnostic, inbound, across the world. We can funnel those in the correct manners um, and learn from them as well. Outbound, what we've decided as a family office, what we only do then is areas where we can bring value, right? We don't outbound see a product doing particularly well and reach out to them if we don't think we can be anything more than a check. But what I love doing is across the areas where we can bring value. If we see a good business or a good set of founders, uh, we we love reaching out to them. We love to see how we can interact with them. We can engage with them. And more often than not, it's just the start of a relationship. You know, you mentioned earlier, that same thing of we plant seeds, keep watering them, and maybe we'll invest three or four years later or two years later. That's In fact, you know, strangely, family businesses, right? You Even if you don't end up collaborating on a tech investment, there's a potential opportunity to do something together in one of the businesses that you run as a family. 100%. Which eventually will compound back, hopefully, in tentacle down into... And honestly, that's happened. I mean, right now, you know, I mentioned the two deals that we're doing right now that should be hitting uh, 
this should be public over the course of the next few weeks. One of the deals, we've actually been tracking them for the last two and a half years. Uh, my first interaction with the founder was in the business was called something else. It was in a semi-different avatar. Um, and, and they've pivoted about four times. Uh, but we always felt that the founders were fundamentally very sound. Right? We felt like they had just not understood the right product or achieved the right product market fit for what they wanted to do. Plus, market wasn't as ready. Right, we always said to them what they were building should be more global and not India specific. Because again, in the sporting domain, tech and sport, we said if you can monetize it globally, you'll see more value in India to be able to monetize. Right? It took them time to do that, but two two and a half years later, when they were able to get to that point where they were able to crack certain markets, we were fortunate that they reached out to us only. Being like, hey, listen, we want to tell you about the new version of what we have done, and we want to get your feedback. And what happened? One month later, term sheet was sent across uh, and, and things moved on fairly quickly. Um, and that's the beauty of it, right? We, we, I always say this, I, I love planting seeds, right? Uh, and, and just building those relationships because I've, that's all I've been taught from a family office. That relationships are everything. Businesses can do well, businesses can shut down. You know, I call back to what I said earlier, right? How transparently does everyone communicate? Are you are you upfront about the challenges you're facing, right? Uh, shit hits the fan sometimes, but as long as you're aware and everybody's aligned, you'll clean it up. Poor words haven't been spoken. You know, shit does hit the fan, um, especially when you're entering asset classes that are tricky, relationship centric. Um, you know, the market with all the geopolitical situations is happening yeah. constantly around us. COVID, no with the war. I mean, there are things that can really eventually end up affecting you that you have very little control of. And um, it does, it is a diff, it is different. It's a risky asset class. I mean, if you do have a little bit of money to, to lose, but you have a whole bunch of perspective and experience to gain, and that's the attitude that you're actually taking forward to this asset class. I think there's a lot more that you can, um, you know, from a from being wise perspective, take away from that whole experience, and that very few family offices um, are able to do that at the outset. They'll eventually get there, and as long as they're surrounded by the right people, right investments, right investor uh, managers, uh, right people advising them, they'll eventually get there. But having that sort of um, you know heads up heading into this asset class is you know it barely comes um, you know for some of these. Managers. And- Sorry to butt in, but you know, it's also honestly, it's hard to put in the time. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say that I'll take five years to build these relationships. Yeah. Right. If you're in your mid to late twenties and you, you want to sort of, you're, you're itching to move forward. You're itching. Yeah. You're seeing so much happen around you. Yeah. It's hard to blame someone to sort of who, who's in the position of feeling, could I do this quicker? Yeah. Uh, I actually find myself fortunate to be in a place where because I I perhaps entered at a time where there weren't so many like me around me it gave me the time to find my feet right it gave me the time to course correct it gave me the time to be patient I feel like today capital is the easiest to access right Mm -hmm. even for honestly for for good quality fund managers it's not hard to go out there and raise incremental amounts of capital Sometimes for these family offices to be able to access these large funds and to access all of this, they have no choice but to deploy very large tickets so that they are taken seriously. That is the flip side, right? 
I always wanted to be in a position and I, I, I'm grateful and always thankful to everybody who's helped me through the ecosystem where six or seven or eight or 10 years in, I want fund managers to say, hey, listen, if you want to be a part of the fund, you'll get the friends and family discount. It's not about the check size you're writing. It's about we know you'll get deal flow, you'll bring value, you're always available to portfolio companies, your team is always available to everybody, all of those things from a value point, right? And I was very fortunate the last two years, three years that's been happening where funds are minimum ticket size, maybe 10 crore or this or that or whatever it may be. But we're fortunate fund managers are making space for us. And that's always been my approach, right? It's bottom up. What we're doing in investing, what we're doing in sport, what we're doing in capital deployment. Could we deploy larger sums of capital right now? Of course we can. Are we conscious about ensuring that we don't? Yeah, because if I want longevity, money is not going to give me longevity. Relationships and, and people respecting the work that we're doing is perhaps going to give me longevity. Right. That's yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Then the whole mission, the larger impact, whatever you want to do, how how you leave your mark behind the legacy, especially since you're talking about family businesses and family operated um, uh, histories and legacies that we're in in context here. That money can help propel, but money cannot be the only reason why you end up doing it. Right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, one of the things that you also mentioned, I think a while ago, about five, 10 minutes ago was your interest in first time fund managers, emerging fund managers, right? And that particularly stood out to me at that point and rings a bell right now. You mentioned that first time fund managers bring something to the table in terms of excitement, you know, the kind of risk that they want to take, they're younger, they're hungry, they want to work with like-minded LPs as well. Um, and that kind of gives you a little bit of, you know, quick, rapid learning as well in terms of how they're going ahead with, um, you know, some of the sectors. And then some of them are vertical specific, some of them are agnostic. Yeah. Um, and especially since we talked about gaming, there are very few gaming funds that actively invest in India. Lumica is like one of those and kind of like gives like pure access yeah. to entertainment media sort of investments. Gaming is one of those that they do as well. So when you're talking about emerging fund managers, and um, allocating resources and support and capital to some of these first-time fund managers, right? You're also noticing and realizing that there's going to be a huge risk involved because these are these are fund managers who are as good as founders figuring out things for themselves. Perhaps they've had some history in investment banking, private equity, maybe venture capital for a few years before entering and running their own funds. What is it about all of this that still makes you want to like, you know, invest in them, knowing the risk and knowing both the opportunities and you've weighed both of them. But if there's one single thing that you can point to and say, I will still bet on a first-time fund manager, what would that be? What is that thing that kind of gives you that conviction? Because I asked from a point of view where tomorrow if a fund manager is pitching to you, I want them to know that this is something that they've considered before they approach somebody and have a conversation, not just having a conversation with you, but in general, any family office, they need to know this about themselves. And very few fund managers at the outset, I mean, I'm talking about the ones that are probably answering it out in their 20s and early 30s. Um, not to say that age is a number that age is, a, is, 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 a, uh, is, is indicative of vis- wisdom here, but this is something that they need to introspect and kind of like have an answer to before they approach LPs from that perspective. So what is that one thing that kind of always stands out to you, especially when somebody makes an introduction to a fund manager that you have not had previous interactions or history with? 
So there's one question I ask every fund manager or every founder, the set of founders that we invest in. And it's surprising how many times a simple question like that has stumped <clears throat> many. Which is basically, why would someone not take your money? I know it's a really, it sounds really simplistic. And I say, for example, I take that same parallel to why would someone not use your product, right? You'd be surprised how many times folks haven't thought about it. Because there's a certain amount of hubris that you need as a, as, as a founder as well, right? Why wouldn't somebody use my product, right? This is why they'll use it, da, 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 da. There's so many reasons why someone would use it. You need one reason for someone to say no to you. You could have a million reasons why they say yes, right? And I think that's the self-awareness of what you don't know, right? You can always upskill what you know. You're going to continue to do that always, right? And the more you work, the more you do that. But that's been my greatest learning. And that's a question that I get asked internally always. Why would somebody not work with you? Why would someone not want your money? Why would somebody not use your product? Mm. Right? And I feel like it sometimes is very obvious, but it's surprising how many founders or, or fund managers may or may not have. Fund managers to even more. Uh, founders sometimes may still have thought about how they can sort of close that loop of why they're having bleeds at different stages of their funnel but um, I guess to a certain extent fund managers also need that innate confidence and ability to say that I know what value I bring but like I said it's that self-awareness of where I need to improve and today I'm sitting with you and having a conversation because my context to you is this is what I know you have done and I feel like we can work together well and I would be great for you to be a part of the part, right? It's just a case of finding that other person's context and being aware of your own areas of where needed self-development. I don't know. For me, that's, and as a family office, that's, that's oftentimes extremely important because that shines a light on a side of an individual that sometimes people don't want to see in the public eye. People yeah. don't want to talk about. Yeah. Um, it's just making them a little bit uncomfortable and, and, and just accepting the reality. Well, I don't think there's a better note to end this episode on because typically <laughs> when I do an episode like this, I will perhaps end on a note where I ask the person the kind of advice that they can, they can give a family office or they can give their LPs or an advice they can give um, fund managers and founders. But you kind of like summarize that point really well and kind of like started making me think because I think before the podcast recording, you and I were discussing about something that we can collaborate on. And while you were saying that, I wanted to ask, I asked myself that question, why, would, why wouldn't somebody want to work with me on something like this? And I had a few answers in my head, but that's a great, um, you know, question that, that kind of makes you think. It, you know, as you mentioned, um, you got to have a lot of self-awareness, most importantly, but more than that, also the humility to know that you may not always have the answers. You may not have the best technology. You may not always have the best market the team things will always be against you but you perhaps will have a few things that are going for you that will overcome all of the things that kind of feel like a headwind and that's something that everybody's just looking to um to find and if that stands out and you're able to do that very 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 well and i think a lot of people who are confident who have kind of like done the work their homework they understand themselves pretty well are able to like convey that may not be very conscious in the approach, but you know, you know, how they come across with, with what they do, how they speak, how they convey the message and how they have that relationship with you. 
initially itself that you would know that this is somebody that you can see yourself working with more than more than saying hey this is somebody i can trust you can't do that after one meeting but at least you're like hey i can see myself having another meeting with this person that's all you need as a founder sometimes that's all you need as Absolutely. somebody in business sometimes is that second meeting and i think this is the most cliched thing that anybody in sales will tell you is your goal is not to sell a product it's always just to get the second meeting and that's all you need you need to just get to that level and after that it's all about the next meeting and the next meeting and the meeting after that and at some point you eventually have that relationship or sometimes you may not but at least you learn through that whole process that where somebody is dropping off and that is where you would probably need to like find more answers and solutions to to build on that um and i think you summarized that really really well and i know we're a little over time here but this is a fantastic okay. conversation and how you approached um you know all the investments from a family office perspective i know when i look back at the episode it's it started very abruptly you know me putting <laughs> you on the spot and asking you a question with respect to how the evolution of your own family office has come about but the reason i did that and we started somewhat very abruptly and this is to all our listeners as well we're kind of like wondering how this was a bizarre beginning is because we kind of like tied it up towards the end we we kind of like came full circle with how you make investments and what's the psychology what's the philosophy and our family office is operating that's a very difficult thing sometimes to like understand sitting at the outset you know you're a third party you don't really know how family offices think you don't know how fund managers um interact with them how founders are speaking them and you're especially sitting at two um unique positions where you're making investments into startups and you're also investing into funds and um when you take that it's a very different approach to to both investments and it's not easy yeah. and there's no way to beat it on the bush than to be direct about you know some of the learnings and the experiences that you've had and i think you've summarized all of that really well in the 60 minutes or so that we've had here and i can't wait to like sit and edit it because when i edit it i listen to it for the second time um so i'm looking forward to you know holding more conversations with you uh hopefully we'll back at some point again on the podcast and we can break down all the learnings that you've had being a patient investor both in you know funds as well as in startups and hopefully it's a great year in terms of all the yeah that's what that's what but thank you so much for having me i mean i i'm certain it'll be the first of many conversations to come always always happy to be here and having this chat as well um and yeah i mean here's to another 15 20 30 years of of great learning and and sort of just being a fly on the wall well that brings us to the end of yet another episode here on the dcvc podcast Thanks for sharing some fantastic insights about how the family office thinks about its investments into funds and startups. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast and I'm really looking forward to how we can collaborate going forward into the future. Well, if you're like me and you enjoyed that episode, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Not only does this help others discover the show, but also keeps you updated about our future releases. You might just want to go ahead and do that because next week on the podcast we have somebody from one of India's largest and most well-known funds coming and talking to us about the importance of a non-investment role. Curious to know which one I'm talking about? Well, make sure you tune back in again next week and hear all about it. Until then, stay safe everybody and keep hustling.